an Austrian professor, Fritz Pohl, he asked me, hey, you, you're giving talks on HIV. Did you check the evidence? And I said, look, the whole world is saying this. And he said, no, no, I, he was not asking the world. He's asking me. I became a red face and said, no, I have not checked because, no, I just heard it. And then he said, look, this might be dangerous. If you scare somebody to death and there is no reason, you contribute to his suffering and even dying or suicide, man. And then he gave me the copy cards, you know, that I am able to copy everything. And he said, look, every paper which is of interest, you copy twice for me. And Friday afternoon, we are going to discuss all on this. And this is how I was pushed into this field, you know. And then I went, of course, I found the publication of, of Gallo and then of, from Montagnier. And I saw virus in the title, but a virus structure, a nucleic acid of a given size, a given sequence with an envelope, it doesn't appear in the paper. Only single molecules were added and said to be part of a virus and a certain activity said to be, that it's representing a virus. But it was never isolated, never seen in a human being, in blood or in a plant or in an animal, you know, just photographs from cell cultures, which everybody knows these are showing typical structures of cells dying in the test tube, you know. So this is how I run inside. And I was deeply shocked. I was deeply shocked. What happened when you told this to other scientists? I was not able to tell to nobody because I was afraid I'm losing my lab. I go in the fifth term, I, I got an own lab. Imagine, you know. And then I was afraid that they kicked me out of the university, you know. So I was studying, studying, I was looking right to the left, uh, to the measles virus, to the hepatitis viruses, and then I saw, look, it's always the same. There was a time when I first started asking questions. I, all I wanted was, where are the papers? Just tell me the papers that you read that convinced you that HIV was the cause of AIDS, because I need to reference those papers in some of the... I was working on a test for HIV with PCR, and I needed to write a little report to the NIH to say, here's the progress we've made. And the first line of it was, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. And I thought that was true. This is before I got into, involved. And I said, what's the reference for that quote? And I looked for it for about two or three years, and I never could find it. And by the end of two years, I'd ask everybody at every meeting that I'd gone to that talked about AIDS. I'd ask, you know, every, I'd look through every computer database. There is no reference. There is nobody who should get credit for that statement. Now, that's a pretty weird situation in science, where getting credit for a discovery is the most important thing in your life as a scientist. It's silly to hear people saying, you don't believe that HIV causes AIDS? You don't believe that? I mean, it's just a word, but it's a very, very important distinction, I think, that, that, that you know, that's why, it, and it, it's become a very emotional kind of thing, because people actually, they get personally committed to what really is a body of evidence that can be analyzed, you know, by lots of people, and, and at this point, there's so much of it out there, Nobody can really analyze it, all of it, but nobody can write a review of it that says HIV causes AIDS because of this. You know, if a postdoc were to write a review of their literature that showed without much doubt that HIV was the cause of AIDS, that guy would be famous.
Now there's a hundred thousand guys out there who had the opportunity. It's ten years has passed. We've been waiting for this star postdoctoral fella to distinguish himself forever and get a lifelong grant from Tony Fauci, but he hasn't shown up. No one has bothered to write a definitive review. Any journal would take it. That right there proves that HIV does not go safe. Just because Bob Gallo gets up, takes his black sunglasses off and says, gentlemen, you discovered the cause of AIDS. That's all we have. New York Times article, CDC report, that's all we have. That's not enough. That's not enough to, to you know, that is not sufficient to, to like publish even a, a meager little scientific paper somewhere. That isn't enough for scientists to believe some inconsequential fact about some star 50 light years away, you know. That's certainly not enough to treat at the cost of million, billions of dollars a year and at the cost of a lot of lives and anguish and just destroyed, you know, lives have just been totally ruined by this thing on the basis of some flimsy little statement made by a guy who's known to be a crook in lots of other ways. He lied about a whole lot of other stuff. Why are we trusting there? He was a witness in a courtroom. We wouldn't trust his testimony. We've caught him in too many lies. So you don't trust him anymore. Scientists are supposed to have some evidence that leads them tentatively to some conclusion or to some action. They're supposed to be able to show that to other scientists. Any interested person, in fact, who's willing to understand what it is that was used as evidence should be able to say, yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense, using rules of inference that we've used for, since Aristotle. The first time I really questioned it, I was working on a project where we were measuring HIV in people's blood at this place called uh, Specialty Laboratories in Santa Monica. I was just an, a, a consultant there. And I came in about three days a month, and we were working on that. And at some point, we needed to re up our, our grant from the NIH to work on that, and I had to write it. And so the first line of that was, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. And I wrote that, and then I said, well, I need a paper, some kind of scientific paper, to reference that statement. Because when you make a, scientific, a statement like that, that's like a fact. You need to say, here's how come I know that. Right? You put a little one if it's the first statement you've made, and then you put down at the bottom of the paper, you have a one, and you say, here's a paper by somebody that describes why that statement's true, right? And so I said, to, I said well, what's that? I don't know, let me think about it. What is that paper? Who do I go to for that? And I looked around, I asked a couple of virologists at that company, and they said, no, you don't have to reference that. I said, I have to reference that, because I, I don't know where that came from. How do I know that? And it turned out that nobody knew it. There wasn't a scientific reference, like a, a paper that somebody had submitted with like experimental data in it and like logical discussion and said, here's how come we know that HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. There was nothing out there like that. Nothing. Can you tell me about your experience when you met Luke Montagnier the first time and you questioned him about his well, by the time I met Luc Montagnier, I had met a lot of AIDS researchers at meetings, and I had always gone up to them. If they, if they talked like they knew about H, HIV and AIDS, I always went up to them afterwards and I said, where can I find a scientific reference that I can use for my... Remember I said I had a sentence there. It said HIV is the probable cause of AIDS, and I needed to have that backed up by something before I could write it and submit it. 
And I went around and I asked a whole lot of people. I said, well, the people, you know, I can't find it. I, at first I looked for it, you know, just in, in like computer searching kind of stuff like that. But then I said, there's got to be somebody that knows this. You go to experts and ask them. And so I asked all these people one after the other, and none of them had it. None of them. And I was getting really freaked about that. That's when I first started saying, they don't know. Nobody really knows. This whole thing is a big sham. It's ridiculous. But then finally Montagnier came to a, there was a, a special little seminar down in San Diego where an old friend of Robert Gallo's, Flossie Wangstall, was opening up the Department of AIDS Research down in San Diego. They had big, lots of money involved, federal money. And they had Montagnier come there and give a talk. And after that, they had a little wine and cheese thing. And I went over to Montagnier afterwards and I said, uh, Dr. Montagnier, I, 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 have a, I can't find a uh, reference. Like, who, I can't find a reference to go with the statement, HIV is the probable cause of AIDS. I, I'm sure you can help me. And he, he knew that he probably should be able to help me. And he said, well, why don't you quote this new work? This, and by new, he meant like something that came out this year. Right? This new work about a, 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 a virus that can kill uh, monkeys. Or I think it was not monkeys. It was like uh, something related to monkeys, some kind of a baby, a little ape. And, and I had read that, and I said, that didn't. It was like supposedly going to be a model system for studying AIDS. That somebody had figured out some kind of retrovirus that passing it back and forth between various mammals, they could, prob they could finally put it into chimpanzees and kill them. And it killed them in about a week, and it didn't kill them in any, there was nothing like AIDS there, you know. It, it doesn't kill you in a week. This is just totally ridiculous. It, none of the symptoms were the same. And I said, I said, well, you know, I read that paper, and I didn't, I didn't see any connection between that and AIDS, and, I, and, I, and I, I don't think that would be a real, I wouldn't want to use that as a reference. And... Uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I know he walked away. Oh, no, before he told me about that paper, he said, why don't you use the NIH, like the, the CDC report? And I said, well, I looked at that, and that was not a scientific paper. And then he said, what about this other thing, this, this, this like paper that had just come out about a month before, and, and it, a lot of fanfare associated with that paper, but it was total crap. It was like, yeah, if you get $2 million dollars, you can figure out how to kill a primate with a retrovirus. So what? Doesn't have anything to do with AIDS. It didn't look like AIDS. It didn't smell like AIDS. It wasn't AIDS. It was just a got a retrovirus that can kill a chimpanzee. So what? So I I didn't get any more out of him. He walked away after that. And the people standing around, by the way, who were his colleagues there, looked at him like they were thinking he should come up with a better answer than that. But he couldn't, and that's, he just turned around and walked away. I really thought he'd have an answer. I really did. I mean, that was my last... I was right at the edge of my, my faith in the system. But I thought, Montagnier will know why he thinks HIV causes it. And he'll tell me. He'll say, because of this study. You know, but he didn't have that. None of those guys have that. And that's why they're so, they're so weird. You know? That's why they don't want dissent. They don't want people like me walking up and asking them those kind of questions. And they're willing to like go to great lengths to prevent that. 
They're out on a limb. I wouldn't want to be there with them. A CDC document titled Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 from Patient with Coronavirus Disease United States describes the process of what they call isolation of the COVID virus. The process starts with a swab taken from a male Chinese patient in Washington, D.C. in January of 2020. They did this in a way where they had basically fragments of genetic material from whatever would be in someone's lungs who was sick, which would be a lot of different things. And there turns out that there's like 56 million individual little fragments of RNA and they sequence those and we don't know where any of those individual fragments are from because we didn't get it from a virus. After acquiring the sample, substances were added to the mix. Among the substances added to the unpurified sample were Vero cells, which are kidney cells from a green monkey. They also added human liver cancer cells, human embryonic kidney cells, human lung cancer cells, and fetal bovine serum. The mixture was then put into an incubator and later tested for cell damage. This cell damage they call a cytopathic effect and is assumed to be caused by the presence of a virus. But as Dr. Lanka had discovered, no swab sample was required to produce the same cytopathic effects just this witch's brew of substances added in the CDC's experiment. Next, they took samples from the damaged cell culture, enough, they say, to span the genome of the virus. But the genome at this point had not been mapped, so how did they know its length? Enter GenBank, a reference library of all known viral genomes. So they pull out these sequences, and then, of course, they, they're not a continuous sequence, so how do you piece them together? So basically a computer runs for several days trying to piece these things together in some theoretical framework that fits the parameters of whoever set up the operation. So they say, oh, well, it's gonna have a spike protein um, and it's gonna be at this point. So then the computer fills in sequences, who knows where they're from, that were from you know, somebody's snot. And then when there's missing gaps, the computer just makes it up. Like they may pull it from something in a database from another virus uh, or just generate it uh, based on a pattern uh, recognition algorithm, right? So essentially, it's just a theoretical model. And sometimes it's even referred to in the literature as an in silico model, right? Meaning that it's made in a computer on circuitry. It's not a real genome of a real organism. And... And anyone that you know purports it to be, they should just simply look at the methods. Um, and and this is roughly called next generation uh, sequencing. When the computers had rendered their results, the data was quote interpreted manually or more commonly using qualitative software by suitably trained interpreters. In other words, a panel and a computer tweak the final results. Let's recap the CDC's virus isolation procedure. They start with a swab from a person with symptoms. Then they add several toxic substances. Then they observe that monkey cells became damaged. They assume the damage was caused by not just a virus, but a human virus. Then they choose a virus from GenBank that they think it might be similar to. Then they run several computer algorithms to make the data fit that model. A panel of experts tweaks the final result to publish what will come to be known as the SARS-CoV-2 Complete Genome.
No, the gene in the isolated the virus. That's the issue. That's the issue. I'll read you what Pfizer says about their mRNA vaccine. Quote, the DNA template used does not come directly from an isolated virus from an infected person. Here's another quote. The DNA template, SARS-CoV-2, gene bank, etc., was generated via a combination of gene synthesis and recombinant DNA technology. So if this is a hoax that Pfizer doesn't have the virus as their template, then apparently Pfizer is in on the hoax. Clearly, logic and common sense dictate that if you have not isolated the thing you are looking for, there is no possible way to determine what the thing is made of or what it alone does. Yet all of the listed institutions indicated the same, that they had searched the records and located none describing legitimate isolation of any SARS-CoV-2 patient sample performed by anyone anywhere on the planet ever. And if the virus actually existed, should this information not be at their fingertips? And so I started looking at the articles where they say that they've discovered a novel coronavirus. And what I uncovered is that they put forth this experimental criteria that proves the existence of a virus. But when you take a closer look, it's actually the experiment itself that gives them the proof they need, even if you don't even have any source of a virus in the experiment at all. And this was actually carried out recently by uh, Dr. Stefan Lanka in Germany, who showed that he got the same proof of a virus by doing the experiment without any source of a virus whatsoever. The dying of cells in the test tube, we can create in the same manner without infected material. And then they're calling their dying cell tissues an isolate which then they offer on the market for 2,000 euros. And then they say, and in here, and this is the virus. And from that, we can create a vaccine now. The most important paper written on the COVID-19 situation by Christian Drosten and others on where he got the genome or where he got the PCR segments that they're using in their test. And he says, and I'm quoting here, we aim to develop and deploy robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratory settings without having virus material available. Now, I don't know how much clearer they can make it that they never actually had possession of a virus. They never had possession of a genome. I started submitting Freedom of Information requests to Health Canada and other Canadian institutions to see if they had any real SARS-CoV, any evidence of real SARS-CoV-2 isolation. My requests were specifically worded to weed out the papers that I claimed to have isolated, but in fact performed what I call fraudulent monkey business. So far, the following Canadian institutions have responded. Health Canada, National Research Council of Canada, the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization dash International Vaccine Center at the University of Saskatchewan, which had claimed to have isolated the virus. McGill University, 
the region of Peel, where I used to live, the city of Toronto, University of Toronto, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, McMaster University, and Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Note that researchers from the last four of those institutions had already publicly claimed to have jointly isolated the virus, and at least two of them are involved in COVID-19 vaccine development. Now, if we go back to our dictionary definition of isolate, which is to obtain a substance or microorganism in an uncombined or pure state, we can see that people are confused, or at least talking about very different things, because nobody has produced an uncombined or pure state sample. Other investigators were also aware of the inconsistent ways in which isolation was being used. Here in New Zealand, the media reported in mid-2020 that Professor Quinone Matteau of Otago University was able to grow the SARS-CoV-2 virus and isolate its RNA, its genetic material. However, Canadian researcher Christine Massey and New Zealander Michael S. have been submitting freedom of information requests to health institutions around the world. When they made an Official Information Act request to Otago University, they were advised that the university, in fact, had no records of any study describing the actual purification of the alleged virus. Okay, it's time to get some more lessons from Professor Racaniello to see if a representative from the orthodoxy can tidy up their mess. He says, An isolate is a virus that we have isolated from an infected host and we have propagated that in culture. You put that sample in cells and culture, which is how we grow viruses. And you grow virus, and now you have an isolate. Alright, I think we might have hit some major problems here. He's implying that someone spits in a cup, and if you mix it with a cell culture, hey presto, we've isolated a virus. That doesn't sound like isolation at all, because we're dealing with samples and culture mediums that contain all kinds of substances, without any mention of purification. Professor Racaniello goes on to say that most of the time we take this nasopharyngeal swab in the solution, we just do the genome sequence and we don't actually have a physical isolate virus and that's very important. Okay, so that's a big concession. He admits many of these so-called isolates are simply detecting genetic sequences from crude clinical specimens. Unfortunately, Professor Racaniello's discipline for terms really seems to fall apart when he goes on to say this is a phylogenetic tree of 4,000 or so genome sequences of SARS-CoV-2 isolates. But then he goes on to recover from this slip and state that the dots are individual genome sequences which may or may not have an isolate associated with them. But can you see the major problem here? Detecting nucleic acid sequences does not equate to proof of a virus. In fact, the professor said so himself in his 2017 blog. Many laboratories choose to assay the presence of viral genomes by PCR. This is an acceptable technique, as long as the limitations are understood. It detects nucleic acids, not infectious virus. However, even with the professor's stricter definition of isolate, that of a culture mixture, he's still not referring to a purified specimen. The central question is how does any scientist, any virologist, prove that a quote new virus is the cause of any illness? The answer is surprisingly clear and straightforward. 
it also mimics how any normal human being proves the causation of anything. The first thing one does is to find a number of people who seem to suffer from the illness in question. This could be COVID-19, AIDS, Hep C, or any other illness. Then, using standard and common virological isolation and purification techniques, techniques that have been in common use in every virology lab for decades, one would isolate the virus from every other substance in the blood, sputum, or tissues of the affected person or animal. Using electron microscopy, one then shows the world the pure isolated particles called viruses from each of these people. All of the viruses should look identical. The next step would be to analyze the genetic material of these identical particles using commonly available computerized genetic sequencing tools, which have also been available for decades. These sequences should also be identical from one particle to the next. Finally, these isolated, purified, photographed, and sequenced viruses would then be introduced onto test animals along with rigorous and appropriate controls to see whether the test animals develop the identical illness that the original subjects had. Then and only then, once these steps have been performed, can we say with confidence that this new virus is the likely cause of this new illness? During this past year, I have spent countless hours looking for evidence that these simple steps were done for the illness called COVID-19 and that the virus called SARS-CoV-2 was properly isolated and characterized. To my shock and surprise, Neither I nor anyone else I know looking into this issue has yet to find a single published study that even attempted to perform these simple and doable experiments. As shocking as this may be to hear, I now ask that if you dispute this, please make available the paper or papers that successfully did these simple experiments. We also have a communication from the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is Anthony Fauci's institute, in indicating that the electron microscope images that they published did not involve isolation of any virus. A casual reader, like a typical doctor who would you know, see articles and curated by some organization like WebMD, they would just see the titles uh, of the article and they would think that the virus really was separated and isolated according to the, the definition of the word isolate that they know. However, that's been completely obfuscated in these papers by coming up with this false definition of isolation, which really means to um, grow a toxic cell culture and then show cell damage. They pull out these sequences and then of course, they're not a continuous sequence. So how do you piece them together? So basically a computer runs for several days trying to piece these things together in some theoretical 
framework that fits the parameters of whoever set up the operation. When there's missing gaps, the computer just makes it up. Like they may pull it from something in a database from another virus uh, or just generate it uh, based on a pattern uh, recognition algorithm. Right. So essentially, it's just a theoretical model and it's not a real genome of a real organism. A panel of experts tweaks the final result to publish what will come to be known as the SARS-CoV-2 complete genome. The problem with this is that if nobody had a purified virus, how did they get the genetic sequence? They take artificial and hypothetical primers based on existing genetic sequences available in GenBank and mix them with a sample from a patient. They were fooling themselves, virologists, and in fact, they are behave in a manifest, in a proven way, anti-scientifically. And this you can see with every those seven arguments they would use in order to claim a virus. So let's go ahead inside those seven points and go quickly through and you'll get the arguments to get rid and to convince and to help at least everybody to get the tool on its end, the logical arguments to prove on him own, on, on yourself, that the claims of virology, virologists are anti-scientifically in one way and now it comes the best point, they have disproven themselves in the things which they published on their own. I mean, uh, this to this easy end, you have to come and it took me quite a year because as a scientist, I was used to go into every publication to, to point out, no, this is, there's no logic, there's no control experiment. And uh, so being forced to have easy and true information, I came up with those uh, uh, seven arguments. And the seven arguments are easy going. The first thing is they would kill cells in the test tube, not knowing that they are killing those cells, starving them, reducing the, the, the embryonic sera, the nutrition, reducing a 90% from 100% to 20 or to 10%. So the tissues, the cells in the test tube are going to starve already and would die eventually. Then they would add cytotoxic uh, uh, antibiotics, neomycin, uh, etc., and which would kill bacteria in our tissues, the mitochondria, which is metabolizing oxygen. I think the term mitochondria, everybody should know, right? And these antibiotics are killing the mitochondria of the tissues in the test uh, tubes. So they are dying. And then they add something which they believe is infected from the outside, being it blood, being liquid out of the mouth, you know, they would add it. And then they look and when the cells are going to start to die, they call it the cytopathic effect. And they equal this with the presence of a virus, with the multiplication of the virus, and that they isolated it. And the, the dying cells, they would call the isolate. They would freeze it, they would use it, uh, reuse it. And if they use it as a vaccine, they would call it a living virus because they think, ah, the, the intact virus is inside there. So this thing, what they did, this technique, 
was never controlled that to outline that not the starvation, the intoxifying, it's causing the death of those cells. And they never ever did it with uninfected material, the same amount of proteins, which also go into decay after days or weeks when they do their infectious experiments, right? And uh, proteins into decay also turn themselves into toxic substances, right? Hitting those naked tissues and cell in the liquid in the test tube. They never did the control experiment. The conditions that are being created in a Vero cell culture or another cell culture type when they are claiming to have isolated a virus, they're not actually isolating anything. They're creating the conditions for a cell to decompose, to die. And then those fragments of the cell that break down, they take pictures of those and claim that that is a virus. But then the other piece of this is with a control, right? They've never taken an inert substance and replicated the same experiment to see if the effects are the same. That's it. So we are then coming to point uh, two. So they would take uh, dying tissues, put it into raisin, put it into thin slices, look through with the electron microscope, and then they see typical structures of dying tissues. They call it villi. So the mass of tissue tries to grow, you know, like amoeb. And those, those structures, when you cut through, they look spherical when you look through. But in the end, they are not spherical, right? So these particles, they would claim, oh, they are representing a virus. But they never ever proven that they isolated those particles and did the biochemistry. So in every paper on SARS-CoV-2 or any, any other virus, HIV, measles, you'll find the same pictures, but never the claim that they were isolating these structures and looking if they will find the core of the virus, the genetic material. Never ever, you must imagine. So they, they show something, but they forgot to do the biochemistry. And in this step two, they never did the control experiments with exactly same treated tissue cultures, whereas the infected material has been sterilized, right? By radiation or heat or whatever. They never did this. So in this step, they are anti-scientifically as well. Now we go to step three. They show us other kinds of particles. Those are the photos where we see several particles lumped together. Of course, they are stained. Electron microscopy is always black and white. But those are the typical particles showing, look, this is SARS-CoV-2 from an isolate, right? So, and uh, what they are doing, they take the liquid of the cell culture, spin uh, the material down, the proteins, and sear it up with a pipette. And there we have the proteins, the fatty acid, and the detergents. So what they are building? They are building bubble soaps. Really, it's a <laughs> soap opera. And when we have, when we want to be funny, right? Uh, and then they put stain in it, let, let it dry, and then they take the photograph. They never did the control experiments with uninfected cells, but equally we treated. And those particles never ever had been isolated and biochemically, biochemically characterized. In order, just to, to be say, clear on this, though, just just to be clear before we continue, has from your perspective um, as a virologist, has any virus ever been isolated and proven to cause disease in a healthy host? 
No. And I mean, this is uh, uh, the, the right point to say, of course, the, the short answer to your question is no. But now the explanation why they are believing that they have a virus, right? And so we have uh, to go a little bit only back into history. And in Germany, we have a really nice paper, a review of the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. And it was published in 99. And it's on the history of, of uh, the early virology, right? And uh, this, is, um, this paper shows that till the year um, 52, we had a virology which is completely different from the virology nowadays. And this virology had been abandoned. A virus was thought to be a protein, a toxic protein, right? And um, that at, till this time, till the year 1952, it was believed that proteins are themselves the genetic material. So they have the possibility to self-replicate, right? So to explain why they are believing they have a virus, we have to know that uh, we had another form of virology till the year 1952, 1952. And this virology abandoned it themselves because they did control experiment. Till this year, a virus was believed to be a, a protein on its own, a toxic protein like the toxic proteins in bacteriology. We still believe that we have a, a tetanus toxin, a botulinus toxin, right? So, and till this year, it was believed that proteins are their genetic material on their own, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, in this year, 52, it was shown that proteins do need a nucleic acid in order to replicate themselves, right? And from this time on, it was believed that uh, we have a genetic material, the nucleic acid, and this is needed to build a protein. So, and the control experiment showing that when they let healthy tissues go into decay and do their filtering, they came up with the same proteins. This was disproving the old virology. And you can see all those details in this review work and uh, that the most important that all attempts to transfer the disease to other human beings or to animals never ever uh, worked and materialized. So, and then what happened? Uh, it was uh, found in the field of in the field of bacteriology that uh, when bacteria. Uh, have no ability to maintain their life through radiation, a sudden offset of, of nutrition. Uh, if you treat them high, uh, replicate them in high numbers, all of a sudden they die, but they would not only die and decay in all its pieces, but they would transform themselves into smaller particles. And those smaller particles are called the bacteriophages. And it was a bacteriologist who said, look, we don't know what viruses should look like. The old idea has been abandoned, but let's uh, try to uh, see if we can at least multiply viruses like we do it with bacteriophages. And he did exactly the same. 
He plated not bacteria, but he plated cells in a test tube. He flattened tissues, right? And then uh, he would use antibiotics to claim no bacteria would not kill the cells. He would starve them a little bit so they would get hungry to eat and take up the rounds, right? And then he would take the, the control experiment. And this was John Franklin Enders in the 1st of June, 54, he published this speculation. He named it a speculation that this could be a, a, a mean to multiply viruses, right? This was done in the field of measles virus, right? But to be clear, he, he introduced an a, a antibacterial that was really in a, in a traditional sense, poisonous to the cell, also starved the cell. And then That's he is it. claiming, oh, this could be how we replicate yeah. a virus. Yes, he was a bacteriologist. He was doing his PhD with, on, on, on bacteriophages. This you have to see, you know. And even uh, he studied before different things. He had not uh, studied biology. So he was not aware about the scientific principle to question yourself and especially to question your own technique, which you introduced in order to avoid and to prevent that the technique itself uh, is, is giving you the result, right? That you are not fooling yourself. But this is exactly what he did. Even so, he warned in this paper, and uh, Dean is able to show this paper, and, uh, and uh, this paper uh, clearly shows that the cells even dying without adding uh, infected materials. And he said, well, there could be a virus already inside the tissue. Those are, came out up all from, from, from the kidneys of monkeys or in, that there's an unknown factor, but he never controlled this experiment, never. I mean, and what happened a half a year uh, later on 10th of December, 54, he got the Nobel prize, but not for this speculation, for another speculation in the old field of, of biology, of, of a finding of him of the year 48 on the so-called polio virus, right? And if you look on this, you know, for this time, we should have you in going into this detail as well. You see how ridiculous this is. In the old field, in the old virology, um, you took just a slice of a diseased organ and you said, this is the virus inside. And then you took a slice of an organ, which is from a healthy person, and you put the diseased slice on top of it. And then the next day, when you have a circle of decay around, then you, you would believe, oh, the virus is spreading, diffusing, and multiplying itself in, in the healthy, you know, in polio, it was a, a slice of a brain of a diseased uh, human being. And it, in fact, it was a colleague running into his lab he was at the children's hospital at this time in, 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 in Baltimore. Yeah. And uh, then, uh, oh, I have the polio virus. And he said, no, I have no slice of healthy brain. And in order to throw it away, then let, I'm, I'm working with chicken fibroblast cell cultures. Let's put it on this because we don't know when we get a, a healthy slice of brain again. So the next morning they saw why in a circle around the, the, the dead piece, you know, of course, brain, uh, they thought, oh, the virus, it's multiplying in other cells than thought. And this was a revolution in, in biology because till this time it was believed the virus is causing disease only in 
in uh, and, and replicates itself only in the tissue it, it's going to disease right and this notion wow uh, wow what fantastic so the virus could replicate somewhere else and then doing uh, this disease in it in the nerve tissues right and this became a revolution and somebody took this notice this was jonas salk he bought every human embryo, took up out the skin of the embryo, all the muscle, put it in the fermentator, a slice of diseased brain, get it all into fermentation. And then, of course, he had to stop some when the decay. So they added uh, 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 toxins, uh, uh, glutaraldehyde, right? Aldehydes in order to stop the, the, the decay. And then he used this as a vaccine. And he claimed, at least the, 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 the New York Times claimed that he did the control experiment on its own with his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that the vaccine works perfectly and he became rich. But all the scientific community, and you'll find it on the web page on, on Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine, they hated him because they knew that he was stealing the idea that viruses are not tissue specific. So he could buy all kinds of embryonic tissues and generate huge amount of vaccines all of a sudden. So before it was much complicated. This was a, a detail. And of course, uh, John uh, Franklin Anders was upset on this. And so he went into a measles vaccine and he said, look, probably we can produce the measles vaccine with, with this technique like we did in, in, uh, in bacteriology. They believed when cells are dying, they would transform their material into viral material. Like bacteria, certain kind of bacteria are doing when they can't grow anymore because mm. of inbreeding, because of highly intoxication. So this bacteriophage, which does exist, which is similar to the giant viruses, which are called now viroplankton, and it become known that we have such a high amount of this nucleic acid in all seas so that the organic matter of those so-called giant plankton, it's higher than every organic forms put together. Imagine this. So the ocean, it's full with nucleic acid of giant viruses. But please don't tell, otherwise we could only... Uh, uh, Swim with, with full yeah. body condoms, right? With a condom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, nowadays, you have to be really cautious, you know. So, but it was your question: How, um, if if it's definitely sure to say that there is no SARS-CoV-2 outside, and not only SARS-CoV-2, HIV, um, measles virus, Ebola. So, how to see this? Let's go into the fourth step, what virologists are doing. What are they doing? They are isolating uh, nucleic acid, which is breaking down in the decay. So millions of very small pieces of nucleic acid is isolated, is sequenced, and then they read the short sequences, the, the sequences of the very short pieces, and they add it mentally to a big one, which they never isolated out of a rice and which they never saw. 
And this I is mean, the, this is the in silico piece, right? This is the the theoretical, it. yeah. And it's easy like this. I mean, since four four centuries, nucleic acid easily can be shown to exist when you concentrate it in a in the process of gel electrophoresis. You see a size separation, and when you have one area of the same size of uh, several thousand molecules of nucleic acid at one point, you can easily stain it and see it. You can easily get it out of the gel and even photograph it in the in the uh, electron microscope, which I did with, with the nucleic acid of this giant virus, which I believed in the beginning of my study as a harmless virus, right? Now yeah. I call it a mini spore because uh, it, it's become known that those particles have their own biochemical activity and mm. that they are growing. They're getting more and more complex. So we have a building block of life misinterpreted as a virus. Mm. First bacteriophage, then giant virus, and virology, poor virology, due to the Nobel Prize of Enders for his polio you know, piece of brain and chicken fibroblast finding, you know, that viruses are not tissue specific. He got the Nobel Prize for this, for a virology with that definitely was overthrown in 54, but the public didn't knew. And the Nobel Prize had the function to keep up with this virology uh, because they run all the vaccination and would not abandon the vaccination. Even the model fall apart and was disproven. So this paper, uh, 98 pages paper, uh, which you easily can translate, uh, this shows that the whole field of virology abandoned themselves. And the new field of biology all came, only came into existence because Enders got the Nobel Prize in December for a speculation of the year out of the year 48. And with the Nobel Prize, the other speculation that when cells are dying in the test tube, they transform themselves into viral matter. This became scientific fact through the Nobel Prize as well. And nobody was questioning this. And I mean, I, I, I have been long in, enough in, 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 at university when all of a sudden a colleague of yours or some professors publish a paper in nature, really they, they, they treat them like God, you know, and the Nobel Prize. I mean, that, that, that's uh, no Pope, no hundred Popes together have such a, a wide, like a, a Nobel Prize in our society. And therefore, the speculation of Enders became a scientific fact. And a year afterwards, he wrote already, yeah, this paper of 54, this becomes the unique basis of measles virus production. Why? Because he lost, you know, his opportunity for the polio vaccine. Jonas Syke was quicker. So, and you see it, it's, it's all human what, what's happening. It's not falling out of the sky and it's not by bad intention. Like I believed before that they are all aware of those mishaps and misconceptions and they, they would do it even knowing that it's wrong. No, inside this field of cellular pathology where only matter lab matters, you have no other explanation than decay or 
the devil itself uh, replicating virus, metastasis, and so on. So we are now, in order to understand this most important question, if there is a SARS-CoV-2 or other virus or not, we are in the point four. So what they are doing, they put in statistical programs, they process those millions of molecules and then put them together in a process called alignment. And then they came up and say, look, this is the viral genome. And no, this is such an interesting point, Stefan, because so many people, when you approach them with a paper that says, oh, yeah. uh, or people will approach me or obviously not, not that I'm important, but Dr. Cowan and Dr. Kaufman say, oh, here, this is the full genomic sequencing of this virus. And it's like a genomic sequencing is not synonymous with the presence of an isolated virus, which is exactly what you're saying right here, correct? Yes. So, but as a genome is the core of a virus, they claim if we fabricate the genome, it, it is there. And but the belief system, which they are in which they are fooling themselves and the public, is that when the cells dying in the test tube, what they call the isolate, then they transform the material, the animal material or the human material, it's transforming itself into viral matter. Mm. So. Well, we take the big, the smallest pieces, not wondering why we never ever got a long piece. Why not? So they are making the process of alignment and come up with a sequence and they call it, this is the viral genome. And the one who is quickest, he is the name giver of his new idea, SARS-CoV-2, for example. And all the others, which are doing the same thing, of course, uh, they say, look, I have a little bit, mine looks a little bit different. And so they call it, I found a, a mutation, right? <laughs> because yeah. they agree, uh, uh, wow. well, 90% of the, the virus is not changing, but is especially uh, on, on uh, the, the gene for, for the spike protein, this is changing very much because this that matter has a consciousness and is changing, he's probably adapting better to uh, the lung receptor and infecting more. And so the, the more successful would, would uh, replicate quicker. Hey man, we would not survive a single moment if it's true oh, like shit. this. <laughs> it's true. Because when, the, when, when it's replicated, because booms, it goes like this, the next day it's over, right? So it's, it's so anti-logic what, what they're doing. And we have a lot of examples. The, the, the swine flu in, in 2009, when the people became aware that there are very highly toxic nanoparticles in this vaccine and the government and the army wouldn't get the, 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 the so-called uh, helping substances, the adjuvants, and they are free of uh, nanoparticles, whereas the population should have it. So they refused, 93% of the population refused the vaccine, right? And then all of a sudden the virus disappeared from every talk show, from one night to the next morning. It was over without vaccination. So the virus really behaved very well. He was so afraid against the, the vaccine, which has to be burned in, in, in the city of Magdeburg, you know, it's not possible in, in this way. So in this fourth point, they are not doing the control experiments to try to get the same alignment with equally treated cell cultures. 
Never ever. You must imagine they do something to fulfill the model and forgot to check if they are not get if it's not possible uh, to get the same alignment result using exactly the same producer but with sterilized so-called infected material. It is difficult. And I kept saying, when I understood this, I excused myself in public. Uh, but now I can't keep silent anymore because we are destroying our culture. We are destroying our economy with this madness, right? Which I have foreseen and which I warned in several occasions that we, if we can't uh, get this, this under control, uh, 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 a global history could could kill every of us, right? I mean, this is manifest madness. Nothing to do with their own concepts, even. This is politics driving completely crazy. So, uh, five step five is that uh, when they came up in the alignment with a viral genome, they are not able to just add up a, a certain kind of, of molecules out of their millions, you know. So, they're using a model of a viral genome and compare small peak, uh, sequences where they would fit to this given model. But this given model never came out of a biological entity, not out of a bacteriophage, not out of a giant virus, and of course not out of the idea of a virus. This always is a mental product as well. And what they never did, and what we are going to do right now, is that when you use the small molecules and add them up to a given model, you can create all various kind of viral genomes out of the same source. Out of what they call the isolate of SARS-CoV-2, we'll take it, sequences, and then for the alignment process, we are not giving a corona bad virus as a model. We give a HIV virus, we give a measles virus, we give a Ebola virus, and we'll get the same result as we would have an isolate for HIV or isolate cell culture for missile virus. And so with, with, with the sequencing, basically what you're saying is that you could plug it in to any virus. It could be, it could be any that's of it. That's it. And this is the experimental disproof of all virology because it said that um, when we have uh, that the coronavirus comes into existence some uh, one and a half, two years ago, but not three years ago, right? So this is uh, the claim. So, and, but when we get hold of raw sequence data for Ebola, for HIV, for measles virus, some 10 years ago, five years ago, and this, I please do an open uh, challenge for your audience to ask to find honest bioinformaticians who get hold of the set of raw data which have been sequenced for measles virus, which has been sequenced for HIV, which has been sequenced for Ebola. The sets are there, the raw sequence. And please take those sets of raw sequence and mail it to me, right? Because then I do the alignment for SARS-CoV-2 and we'll get it. You understand? Yes. Well, yeah, you'll, you'll, be able to, to... you'll be able to effectively show that they're all the same. It's all the same thing. 
That's it. And then you can prove all all kind of mutation because you have a set of million uh, debris, small uh, nucleic acid pieces, right? Mm -hmm. And also what you should know, another detail in the detail, um, when you uh, transfer RNA into DNA, and this process is called reverse transcription, right? Which was one the unique proof that there must be a retrovirus, right? So in this process, uh, this process is very unsharp, chemically seen, and it's producing a huge variety of new substances, of new sequences, which before had not been there, right? Mm -hmm. This you have also to keep in mind. So please ask to your viewers if they have contact to a bioinformatician who has the set of raw data for HIV, measles virus, or Ebola, and will send it to me or on its own to just do the alignment for SARS-CoV-2, and we will get SARS-CoV-2 out of the, the same set of data, right? Wow. So wow. this is how to disprove experimentally the whole field of virology with a set of data years ago to come up with the genome of SARS-CoV-2. And so everybody says, wow, this is a self-fooling of those virologists. And in point five, you see the model, what they are using, it's not a real model they found in nature. This is it's on its own a mental construct and they never tried to make the alignment of other viruses as well, you know? Yeah. So this is point five and you see no control experiment in this point five as well, trying to get an, an alignment for another virus. So this means they have proven, disproven themselves and have proven to be anti-scientific. And the one who is anti-scientific, his wording, his papers cannot be considered and used as, as, as a, uh, a proof for the existence of a virus and has uh, as, a, uh, as a basis of a law that we are not for a lockdown measurements whatsoever. It's not possible. Anti-science can't possibly be used for any justification, right? Mm -hmm. So point six, everybody using masks thinks, oh, in the aerosol, there should be the virus because one uh, 5.5 meter distance, the aerosols are so highly enriched with, with viruses that another can be infected. So this is the social distancing. Everybody uh, taking social distancing as a serious thing, thinks, believes that in the aerosols are the viruses. Of course, therefore the social distancing, therefore the mask and your Joe, the double mask, you know. Anyway, and you'll, as a matter of fact, to no virus and not for SARS-CoV-2, you'll find a claim that they could visualize the, the virus in an aerosol, in, inside the liquid of your mouth, even not in the blood or in HIV, not in the semen and not in the lymph node. There is no photograph of said to be, represent a virus outside a human being, outside an animal, outside a liquid, a direct liquid, nothing. And there you can see it's this, they have disproven themselves. And they have never shown that inside the liquid of your mouth or the inner blood, they can find the viral genetic material, the genome. 
which is would be easy. They claim it in millions, it would be there. So why not to isolate the genetic material directly, drive a gel electrophoresis and see, wow, here we'll find huge amount of genetic material, this size, this structure, this sequence. No, and they have not published the control experiment saying we tried to get the virus outside the aerosol, outside the blood, outside the semen, outside a lymph node or somewhere else, but we couldn't never ever get it done and we never achieved it. That would be scientific honest and this have to be done. But this logical step doesn't appear in any paper not of SARS-CoV-2, not of HIV, of measles virus, nothing. And this point six itself disproves them and proves their anti-scientific behavior. This was point six. No virus ever seen in a human being in its liquids, nor its genetic material to core. Point seven. Animal experiments. They claim that we do animal experiments and we get similar symptoms in certain kind of animals, which would equal AIDS, which would equal Ebola, which would equal measles, or which would equal COVID-19, right? So please check these papers and you'll see on your own. Second, the complete anti-scientific behavior, no control experiment. And most important, you'll see, that the way they are carrying out the control, the, the, the experiments to transmit the disease from animal to animal or from the liquid to an animal, it's causing the symptoms on its own. Oh. They would inject huge amount of volumes inside the brain, through the eye, through the ear, through a tubing inside the lung, right? And they would say, this is the symptom of COVID. And it's so cruel, it's so stupid, and it's so anti-scientific because no control experiment ever taken out in the whole field. And remember what I said about this 89-page uh, uh, review of the year 1999 on the history of, on, of virology, that when they carried out those experiments, the trans or the infection experiment, they never could uh, induce disease in an animal, never ever. And only with this unscientific behavior, and it was uh, uh, Robert Koch who started with this. This was Louis Pasteur. And you could read the book of the Princeton University Press published in 93 of Professor Geisen, The Hidden Science of Louis Pasteur. You find that Pasteur was aware of this that he did public experiments, he intoxified sheep and said, look, they are dying because they are infected and not vaccinated. Then he was using sheep not intoxified and he said, look, he infected them, but they're healthy because they have been vaccinated. The truth was in his uh, uh, diaries, right? And became public uh, later. And uh, Max Perutz was writing in the, in the New York Review of Books, this was my, uh, my intellectual flagships for long years. 
the, the most challenging newspaper, the New York Review of Books. But then Max Perutz was writing uh, a review on these books and said, thanks God Pasteur was betraying a little bit. Otherwise, uh, the, the, the theory of infectious diseases would have no chance uh, to surface it. Wow. Check yeah. this and read the material methods uh, part of, of any publication on SARS-CoV-2 or HIV, and you see this pattern of the seven steps, and you see no control experiments, and that in doing what they are doing, they are disproving themselves, and it's wow. easy like this. So we want to do an experiment to see whether the caffeine isolated from a coffee bean uh, causes high blood pressure. So in other words, we want to take, isolate in the usual sense of, I have a pencil here and I isolate the pencil. So that's the only thing I have is this pencil, right? You with me? Yep. So we take the coffee beans and we grind them up and we put them in a capsule and we give it to 10 people. And then we give an appropriate control and all 10 people have high blood pressure who took the ground coffee bean. Have we now proven that the caffeine in the coffee beans causes high blood pressure? Hmm, I guess if you're saying you're controlling for other factors, then you probably narrowed it down at least. So I, I would question that because I don't think you know that the only thing in ground up coffee is caffeine. In fact, I would actually submit that until you prove that, there's likely to be fibers and caffeic acid and aromatic oils and a whole host of other things. We need to take this a step further. So we take those, that ground coffee bean that has a lot, maybe even hundreds or thousands of different things in there. And again, our quest is, does the caffeine in coffee beans cause high blood pressure? So we put it through a filter paper and that that collects all the, the fiber and the cells or, or whatever else is in the ground part. And you end up with what we call coffee, right? And then we give that to 10 people. We give them an appropriate control. Have we now proven that the caffeine in the coffee causes high blood pressure? I don't think there's anybody who thinks that that the only thing in coffee is pure caffeine. And so now we can put it through a centrifuge or flow cytometry or some sort of device, which we can easily do, and we can spin it out. And so you get a band that contains only caffeine. Now, the next thing you do is you send that to an independent lab and you tell them the steps that you did. I ground the coffee at 10 RPMs a minute, I put it through a filter paper and the pore size was this. And then I spun it again in a density centrifuge and it created this band and I sucked the band out with a pipette. I looked at it under a microscope and I looked at it in a chemical analysis. And the only thing I have in there is caffeine. I can prove it. And 10 other people who all do the same thing will find the same single molecule. And then I give it to 10 people, they all get high blood pressure, 10 who don't give them a placebo, it's a controlled experiment, they don't get it. Have I now proven that the caffeine in coffee beans causes high blood pressure? I would think so. I mean, that sounds much more rigorous than where we started. 
Yes, I would agree. Now, what about, Derek, if I took the coffee and I've mixed it in a vat that has chocolate and tea and yerba mate and there may be other things that have caffeine in it, and I swirled it up and I cultured it for a day and then I did the, and then I pulled out the caffeine from that, would I still be able to say that the caffeine from coffee beans causes high blood pressure? No, I wouldn't think so. Because you don't know where the caffeine came from. Exactly. So that's what I mean. That's how a human being understands isolation. And when I say that's how a human being understands isolation, I would go so far as that is the only way to isolate. Now, it's different. Like if I want to isolate a pen from a pencil, I don't have to do all those steps. I can just remove the pencil and I have an isolated pen. And then I can study the pen. Now, I've looked at 31 different studies, although may not be the right number because some of them I may have done twice or I might have missed some, all who said they've isolated this virus. And then I heard the other day, 125,000 times it's been isolated. I can tell you, and I, I am willing to, at this point, retract my book if any one of them did that procedure I just said, which means you take the snot from somebody with COVID and you grind it up just like you do with coffee. And then you put it through a filter paper of known pore size. And that's called the supernatant. And then you put that in a density uh, ultra centrifuge device and it comes out in a band. And then you suck out the band with a micro pipette and you show that that's all you have is this one virus. Then you inoculate or you expose an animal or a person to that one virus, which you now know you have nothing else. And that experiment has never been done. Now, it was done in the 30s and 40s when they invented the light microscope, sorry, the electron microscope. And what they found is this isolated, purified uh, particle didn't cause any disease in any animal or person they studied, not once. And if anybody can show me a single study showing that that definition, which is the common human scientific definition of isolation with a virus causes disease, I will retract the book. Now, how did these people that these papers that you show do that? So here's what they did. They take somebody with COVID sometimes, sometimes they just take a culture they grind it up just like the coffee bean, they put it in a filter, and then they have this unpurified brew, and then they stick it on a monkey kidney tissue and nothing happens. So then they starve the tissue and nothing happens. And then they poison the tissue with genomycin and amphotericin, and then the tissue breaks down into thousands or hundreds or millions of particles all of which have the same genetic material as the so-called virus, because there is only one, you know, building block of genetic material. It's like putting something in a, in a vat of caffeine. And then they say, this particle is the new virus, and it's 
absolutely pure nonsense. And I hope after that, Derek, you can see, you can then read a paper. And if you see that they took the supernatant from ground up cells or snot, that's not purified. And if they inoculate it onto kidney cells, tissue, and it breaks down, and then they take some pictures of it showing a bunch of stuff in the background, that is not what any normal human being calls isolation and purification. And every single one has been that way. And therefore, the, it, the, the challenge stands. Show me, a, why can't they just take somebody, grind up their snot, filter it, centrifuges, show us the picture, put it on an animal and show they get sick, then I can go home and garden for the rest of my life instead of doing this nonsense. That they discovered after 20 years of proper isolation, like I described, right? They took chickenpox lesions, they ground them, they filtered it, they centrifuged it, they found it. Uh, it doesn't even mean actually that it's a virus, really. It could be something from the inside. But let's forget, that just complicates the matter. And then they inoculated it on, on animals and they didn't get sick. And they essentially at that point said, we should go home, there's nothing to this, let's be plumbers. And then they did a analysis and found that plumbers make a lot less money than virologists. So they decided to do what Andy described, which is to put it on noxious uh, tissue cultures. And this paper that Andy appropriately describes, when you read Ember's paper, he says, actually, we have no idea whether these particle breakdown products are even coming from the Vero meaning the kidney tissue or from the outside. They have no idea of that. And so this is the whole shooting match. This is, this is everything because if this is based on a fraudulent understanding of science and biology, then you can't, and Andy could, could describe exactly how they go from this to making a quote, theoretical genome of a quote, theoretical virus, it's, it's just, it's, it's scientific nonsense. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Putting it in layman's terms and, and the analogy about, you know, what is purification and isolation really helps clarify. And uh, I don't really have a lot to add, but I do want to say that um, it, the procedure that you describe, which is the proper way to purify and isolate particles, has been done more recently uh, than in the 1940s, but not with viruses because they know that that will not yield the result that they're looking for based on past research. But in the field of exosome research, and you know, to remind the audience, exosomes are particles that are virtually have the same physical and chemical properties as what they say disease-causing viruses are, but they're made by our own cells in response to some kind of stressful situation like exposure to a toxin or radiation. And in experiments, scientists have been able to do those exact procedures that Tom outlined. In fact, that you can find articles that just describe methods to purify exosomes out of body fluids. So they're able to use these um, isolation procedures. They're well-established, they're not new. They've uh, been done successfully for other types of particles um, in the past. 
So there's no excuse not to apply it to these alleged uh, disease-causing viruses other than experience tells us that they will get negative results and won't find a disease-causing pathogen using the proper methods. Somehow we end up with a misconception called a pathogenic virus and the world is, is being killed literally because of this misconception. And so anybody who says this misconception is not the most important thing to understand, I just don't know what they're talking about. This is the entire gig right here. If, if these are not pathogens, then why are we putting masks on? And why are we social distancing? And why are we making, quote, vaccines, which are not vaccines? Show me a proper study in a published medical journal where they isolated the virus, as Andy said, as you can do. It's not difficult. And then they introduce that in a normal way into an animal. Now, just let me say here, when they supposedly use this a liquid to create pneumonia in these monkeys, uh, what they don't tell you is the way they, they say they uh, uh, did a nasal inoculation. You know what a nasal inoculation means? It means they anesthetized the monkey turned it upside down, put a high pressure spray gun into their lungs, sprayed a bunch of unpurified stuff, and that supposedly means the virus causes illness. So if, if you can show me one study where an isolated herpes virus causes the disease called herpes, I will retract the book because we can't find it. Now, I didn't say that herpes doesn't exist. I didn't say that shingles doesn't exist. Obviously it does. That's not the issue. The issue is whether an isolated virus is the cause. Now, even if I don't necessarily know what the cause is, I can tell you, I know it's not that virus. So Der Derek, I would uh, agree with Tom on all those points. I did wanna, add to answer your question earlier about, you know, has a, a virus ever been isolated? And before I answer that though, in, in the way that a different way that I want to, I want to just differentiate the word virus and what, because it's very confusing, what are you actually referring to? So what I would like to just substitute is the word particles. So have particles that can only be seen on an electron microscope you know, been isolated in any context? And I would say, yes. So they have found particles called bacteriophages uh, that live in black bacteria cultures in a pure culture in, in laboratory conditions. And also they have found uh, particles uh, of that size in other lower organisms like sea algae. Um, and, and I think they call those giant viruses actually. And those particles are quite interesting. Um, and I would encourage you, I, I, I wish I had thought of this before, to find some photographs of the microscopic images of these particles because they have very, very distinctive geometric forms. They don't just look like a, a round blob, like the pictures of the alleged viruses that cause disease. And so I don't think any of those are the microscopic images. Um, these look like uh, computer graphics, mostly uh, images. 
Um, and that's another problem, you know, that a lot of the images you might see that are allegedly viruses are really computer graphic images created, uh, you know, by an artist and not actual microscopic um, images. But if you look at actual microscopic images of bacteriophages or uh, these algae related, you know, that they call viruses, but they don't, they don't cause disease in the algae and they don't uh, cause disease, I believe, in the bacteria either, although they were originally thought to eat the bacteria. But these have been readily purified. And so, for example, with bacteriophages, and really the idea that a, a disease-causing virus is an organism with genetic material really came from bacteriophages before um, the 1950s, mid-50s, really, the idea of a virus was that it was some kind of protein that was poisonous that it wasn't an organism at all. Uh, they just thought it was a, a toxic material and they thought it might be able to self-replicate. But the idea that it was a particle or that it contained genetic information wasn't conceived really until after bacteriophages became a sort of a model. But you can find dozens and dozens of papers where they isolate and purify bacteriophages out of bacterial cell cultures and that you can look at a microscope, a microscope image where all you see wall to wall are phage particles. And they have this very characteristic look. It almost looks like an alien uh, ship of some sort. Um, and they always have this kind of geometrical configuration. So it's easy to tell that that's really a thing because of the way that it's been you know, purified and that it's been shown and it's very distinctive visually. Um, in the other types of particles that we're talking about, which include exosomes, it includes the so-called uh, particles that they say are, are disease-causing viruses, and, and also includes other types of particles that, of cellular breakdown, like apoptotic bodies and other ones that may not even have names. All of these are indistinct. They uh, have a large range of size. They're all pretty much shaped in a spherical blob uh, that, you know, may uh, perturbate uh, as it moves. But there's nothing distinctive um, about this. Even the um, so-called spike protein granules that they show in these, you know, images with this, these false papers, you can find lots of particles that have those types of granules around the edge, they're, and they're probably an artifact of the staining and processing of the tissue but they're not distinctive. They've never been separated out and characterized what this protein, like no one has purified the spike protein in the laboratory and has a vial with the spike protein and has the X-ray crystal structure and has the amino acid sequence. Um, as Tom uh, read uh, from the, uh, you know, the genetically modification vaccine manufacturer Pfizer, that they didn't even get the sequence from a sample of the virus, right? So when we're talking about that this, they say that the genome, uh, you know, the full sequence of the genetic material of the virus has been determined, um, that's not true at all. It, what they have is a theoretical computer model of a genome of something that, so in other words, if you were to, to sequence the genome of an organism, right? You would have the organism, you would separate the nucleus out if it was a higher organism, and you would take the genetic material out in its pure form, and then you would sequence it. Um, but that's never been done, because as we've described, the virus particle has never been separated where they could extract the genetic material from it.
So what they did was they just took tiny little snippets or fragments of genetic sequences that were in the snot of sick people. And they used um, computer models and targeted um, sequencing probes, basically based on a database that has, you know, so-called viral sequences um, that are from other experiments that are done the same way. So it's all basically generate a lot of supposition in these sequences. And so they pull out these sequences. And then, of course, they, they're not a continuous sequence. So how do you piece them together? So basically, a computer runs for several days trying to piece these things together in some theoretical framework that fits the parameters of whoever set up the operation. So they say, oh, well, it's going to have a spike protein. Um, and it's going to be at this point. So then the computer fills in sequences, who knows where they're from, that were from, you know, somebody's snot. And then when there's missing gaps, the computer just makes it up. Like they may pull it from something in a database from another virus, uh, or just generate it uh, based on a pattern uh, recognition algorithm. Right. So essentially, it's just a theoretical model. And sometimes it's even referred to in the literature as an in silico model, right, meaning that it's made in a computer on circuitry. It's not a real genome of a real organism. And and anyone that, you know, purports it to be, they should just simply look at the methods. Um, and and this is roughly called next generation uh, sequencing, which can be a powerful technique, but it it's only really uh, when sequencing known organisms with known sequences. Um, and that's why essentially you have this theoretical construct. And so Pfizer is using this theoretical computer model of a sequence of, of a, a hypothetical virus to make basically what they call a vaccine, but it's not really a vaccine because it's, it, it basically is a, a device to genetically modify our cells to make some foreign protein, which is based on this theoretical computer model, not based on an actual sequence from an actual organism. So that's, you know, there's so much confusion um, in how this is done and it's very difficult to parse out, but this is really the procedure that they're doing. And uh, it, it's really, you know, uh, just kind of a, 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 a big quagmire. And, and just let me say, Derek, the only thing I'm going to add to that is that's actually what the papers tell you they're doing. Now, I don't know if people are waiting for like somebody to call them on the phone and say, by the way, we made this up uh, because I don't think that's going to happen. But let me read you from the most important paper written on the COVID-19 situation by Christian Drosten and others on where he got the genome or where he got the PCR segments that they're using in their test. And he says, and I'm quoting here, we aim to develop and deploy robust diagnostic methodology for use in public health laboratory settings without having virus material available. Now, I don't know how much clearer they can make it that they never actually had possession of a virus. They never had possession of a genome. This is exactly, Derek, like if I said to you, I want you to make an exact replica of King Beauregard's castle from 1200 out of Lego. And I say, here's all the Lego pieces in the world. 
and you have to make an exact copy. I'll give you a million dollars if you can do it. And most people would then say, can you show me a picture of the castle? And I say, no, you have to make an exact replica, but you can't have a picture of the castle. Anyways, I'm going to give you a million dollars. So you start looking and then you find a moat and then a turret and then a flag. And you say to yourself, I know that moats belong to castles. And then you, you, you publish a paper on moats and you get a prize for finding the moat protein. And then you get 10 different pieces. You put that into a computer and it generates the castle. And you say, now I found the castle. And then everybody for 50 years argues over whether it's the right castle or not. And that's, that's where we're at. And then eventually the guy comes back and says, oh, by the way, King Beauregard, he was afraid of snakes, so he lived in a townhouse in London. You know, a certain person gets sick in a certain way, let's say a cold or a flu or that, and then somebody else in their vicinity or their family or whatever gets sick in the same way. And one says something was passed between the first person and another person. And... This is a very normal, clear observation. We've all had it. And in fact, interestingly, you know, it was first described at least 2,000 years ago by the ancient Greeks. They said there's something that's passed between people. We don't know what it is. You know, they thought the spirits or who knows what. Uh, they couldn't see anything. And, and then they thought there must be something contagious. And we go then for about 1800 years without being able to find the agent. Now, I would point out that this sort of Western science, Western medicine, is not the only stream of thought going on in those 2000 years, right? There's Chinese medicine, there's probably traditional Iranian medicine, there's Native American medicine, there's Ayurvedic medicine. These are very old, successful medical systems and what you find is none of them thought diseases were contagious. None of them. There is no concept in Chinese medicine that something unseen passes from one person to another. And in no other system did that exist. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's true. You know, they could have all been wrong. But when I looked into it, I thought that was sort of interesting. So then we get to around the 1800s, and now we're really talking about 1850. And there was what I call the first Eureka moment, right? So we're thinking one person is sick, another person gets sick, there must be something spread. And that observation is what's called epidemiological observation. Now, I just want to point out something here, that this contagion theory was applied to, to the following disease. There was a bunch of sailors who got sick and one sailor after another got sick and they, their teeth fell out and then they went into heart failure and died. And this happened in the thousands and thousands of people. And it was usually one ship after another. And for a hundred years, they said, this must be contagious. And then somebody ate a lime and the whole thing went away because it turns out it was scurvy. And the reason I point that out is epidemiological observations, like this person got sick and then somebody else got sick, is well accepted in medicine. That is not how we prove causation. 
And you hear this now all the time. Well, a lot of people in one place got sick, so it must be a virus. Well, a lot, you know, they blew a bomb off in Hiroshima. A lot of people got sick and nobody thinks that was a virus. Or they'll say, uh, if it spreads from one place to another, that proves it's a virus. So I'm sure you remember Chernobyl. There was a nuclear accident. A lot of people died. It started spreading into Eastern Europe and then Western Europe. A lot of people got sick. And as far as I can tell, that's no evidence that that was a virus. In other words, the, the, the idea that a lot of people in Iran or Turkey or Spain or the nursing home or the cruise ship or the whatever got sick, you know, my Aunt Bessie went to a party. Those are epidemiological observations, the purpose of which is to generate theories which can be tested for causation, period. And I would agree 100% that we had enough evidence with contagion that we should investigate for an infectious cause or an unseen agent. Now, that's what Louis Pasteur famously did. He said, uh, there's all these people, and in, in fact, what he used was the case of sheep and said, there's all these sheep getting sick, one sheep after another. Sometimes the people who are handling the sheep got sick. So there must be something uh, that's passed. They then had an, invented the microscope. So the first eureka moment in history then is they could see this bacteria under the microscope. And they saw the bacteria in the sheep and they saw it in the, in the next sheep who got sick. End of story, that's what caused the sheep to get sick called anthrax. Um, and, but here's what happened then. Uh, Pasteur isolated the anthrax bacteria from the sheep, right? So he mm -hmm. took them out yeah. and he gave them to other sheep and none of them got sick. None of the people got sick. Now, here's the way I think people should understand this. Imagine you have a cow and you don't feed the cow proper food, which is grass, right? You feed it cardboard and dead cow parts and, you know, and you soak it in glyphosate and tick poisons, etc. All that stuff comes out in the milk. Now, then somebody drinks the milk and gets sick. Mm. That's contagion, right? And then you look in the milk and you see a bacteria called listeria. And you say, okay, that may be the causative agent. And then you look in the stool of the person and they also have listeria. End of story. And so the listeria, you drank listeria, it made you sick. Now, unfortunately though, or maybe fortunately, there's another explanation for that, which is the cow was sick, the milk, the poisons went into the milk, the role of bacteria in nature is to biodegrade poisons, right? If you have a compost pile and you put dead squirrels in it, you'll get bacteria to eat the squirrels. If you have a pond and you put poisons in it, you get algae growth that eat the poisons. If you have a forest and you cut the trees down, the algae and, and the fungus and the bacteria eat the dead trees. That's called biology, that's called bioremediation. So how do you know that the listeria isn't there to, to digest the poisons in the milk? So we have two very clear explanations for what may have happened, right? It's either the bacteria 
or it's the poison and the bacteria are not causing anything. They're just helping you out by eating the poisons as they do in nature. Now, what I tell people is this is what Pasteur and his colleagues did for 40 years because there is a very simple way to sort this out. All you have to do is isolate the listeria from the milk, right? You can't give them all the milk because then you don't know if the poison's in it. Isolate the listeria, give that to a bunch of animals, see what happens. That's what they did for 40 years. And as far as I can tell from the medical literature, no animal or person gets sick. Now, so it you must know, be the milk. The two main people then were Pasteur and Beauchamp. Beauchamp said it's not the bacteria and it's, it's, the, it's the terrain. Now, so essentially Pasteur and his colleagues tried for 40 years. And in fact, it's very interesting what happened then because a German colleague named Robert Koch uh, came up with very simple uh, guidelines so that, that we would know whether a, a microorganism is causing a disease. And it's very simple and straightforward. They're called Koch's postulates. And they are the hallmark ever since of how we prove causation. And it's very simple. You take uh, like 100 sheep or 100 people with the same disease, and you identify an organism that's the same in all of those 100 people, right? Here's a, here's a way to think about this. I came up with this last night. If you had a disease called swollen thumb syndrome, and so 100 people with swollen thumb, and you ask them, what happened to you? And they said, I don't know, somebody came along and bashed my thumb with a hammer, all 100 of them. Mm -hmm. So that turns out not proof. Uh, so you go to the next hundred people who don't have a swollen thumb and you say, um, did any of you bat get bashed with a hammer? No, none of us. So that's postulate number two. Not, no people who are healthy have that organism, right? Because mm -hmm. if they have it, then why didn't it make them sick? That's still not proof. Then he said, you have to take the organism from the, un, from the sick people isolate it, purify it, give it to the unhealthy people, and if they get sick, you prove causation. In other words, you take the hammer, bash a hundred healthy people, and if they all get a swollen thumb, that's how human beings understand causation. Every human being would say, yes, I'm sure that the hammer is what causes them. And here's the trouble. There is not, Koch eventually said, these postulates don't work because there's not one case in the medical literature where they've proven the postulates. Not one. We've looked for 20 years. They say they do. They say they're still valid because they're common sense. I have reports even from this current episode. You know, we see epidemiology. Somebody should do Koch's postulates. And then we have a, a report from this current situation, Koch's postulates were fulfilled. But the trouble is they never isolated an organism. They never made an animal sick. And they didn't, they didn't do Koch's postulates. So that's how this got started. The next, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. So the next step, so, th so they failed to prove causation with any bacteria. Uh, 
Then they say, well, we have diseases now which we can't find a bacteria, right? But we know that must be an infection because it looks like it's contagious. So there must be something smaller than a bacteria. And the main disease was polio. So they looked in the dead, dead brains and the spine. They looked for a bacteria, they couldn't find it. And so they said, there must be something smaller that's poisoning these children and these people. And they called it a virus. They didn't see a virus. They didn't know what they were looking for. They just said, there must be an infectious agent. And so then they said, okay, we're gonna try to isolate this because they were still interested in these Koch's postulates. And so they put it through a filter. So they had filters that could filter out the bacteria in the cells. So they, they took children or people who had died of polio, they ground their brains up, put it through a filter, and then they took many, many different animals and they fed them the, this filtrate and none of them got sick, none of them. And then they injected it subcutaneously into monkeys, hamsters, guinea pigs, you name it, none of them got sick. And then they said something very interesting, which is, it turns out there's no animal model for polio, which is a bizarre way to think. Because what they're saying is, we cannot make an animal sick with this virus filtrate that we can't see. And then in 1907, they did the experiment that proved virus, or sorry, that polio was contagious. They took a child who had paralysis, they took a piece of their spine, they ground it up in a blender, they filtered it, and they took two monkeys, I think they were rhesus monkeys, drilled holes in their brains, injected about a half a cup of this stuff into their brains. One of the monkeys died, one of the monkeys got paralyzed. They didn't do a control. In other words, they didn't just inject a half a cup of you know, water or something. So they don't know if the monkeys died because monkeys don't like having a half a cup of stuff injected right in their brain. Maybe they had a herniation and they held the monkey up and they said, see, we proved polio is a transmissible disease. Now, I don't know about you, but I can see you frowning there. That doesn't sound like science to me. Uh, are you, uh, like so this entire study was based on two monkeys? Two monkeys. The, the idea that polio was caused by a filterable uh, thing we couldn't see, right? That's the studies. Now, so we go on from there. Then we go to 1918. So now they say, we've proven that there's something filterable, right? You know, we got rid of the bacteria, we got rid of the cells. It could be a poison in there, could be arsenic, because it turns out that lead arsenic and DDT later caused the same symptoms as polio. And so they didn't know that, or maybe they did, but they did ignored it. So they could even have had uh, arsenic in the, in the water. But anyways, because they didn't do a control, they have no idea, they can't find that out. So then they go to 1918 and about, I don't know, 20 million people die from this Spanish flu. Highly contagious disease, right? And then, it, you know, they see one person after another. And again, epidemiology is not how science proves causation. 
They only tell you, you should look here. So they did. The Boston Health Department did study. I, it's in, referenced in the book. I can read you the conclusion if you want. They took about 100, 100 people who had active symptoms of the Spanish flu, right? This is killing millions of people. They're snotty nose, coughing, everything. They got 100 volunteers, and they divided them into three groups. One group, they spent 10 minutes breathing as hard as they could into their mouth, like, like that, right mm -hmm. into their open mouth, 10 mm -hmm. minutes. Yep. The other group, they spent 10 to 15 minutes coughing right in their face. And the other group, they actually took mucus out of their nose, right, sucked the snot out of their nose, and injected the snot right into the volunteer's nose. These are 100 people. The Boston Health Department does this. And you know how many of these volunteers got sick? One. He got a runny nose, which I have the quote here. I could read it to you if you want. That says, it turns out that, this, that none of these ways uh, are able to pass uh, the transmissible agent from one person to another. Now, there, you, you can look at that and you could say that then they came to an interesting conclusion, Patrick. They said, it turns out we needed to be more aggressive in, in exposing the volunteers. And I thought to myself when I read that, like what, do a lung transplant or something? I mean, how can you be more aggressive than that? They, they sucked the snot out and injected it. And literally one person who they said, this is not the flu, they just got a runny nose because we in injected some snot up their nose. You can see physiological responses happen for lots of reasons. And in order to show that it's a microbe, you have to go through the steps. And they try over and over again. And I can keep going if you want and see how they try and it turns out it's not the micro. I, I also understand, Patrick, how bizarre this may seem to people because they get stuck on the epidemiology. They get stuck on this observation. This observation has been around for thousands of years. Same with scurvy, same with lots of things. It turns out we have a scientific method to prove it. We looked and it turns out that's not the cause. So how does a modern virologist prove a virus is contagious? Let me go through the steps. So you take somebody who's sick, like your child with, with chickenpox, right? And you take some of the mucus from that child, and then you centrifuge it, which is not purification, right? So you have all kinds of cells and stuff in there, and you don't have a pure virus. And then you take that tissue and you, I'm sorry, you take that stuff, right, the mucus, and you inoculate that on a tissue, like a monkey kidney cell, or a fetal skin cell, or an immortalized lung cancer cell, right? You take that unpurified stuff, and you inoculate it on a tissue, and see whether it grows and kills the tissue. You with me? Sure. Now, it doesn't. And, and that was the problem of virology. So they figured out that they had to starve the tissue 
and poison it with antibiotics and oxidizing agents. And only then would this so-called virus kill the tissue. And that's how they prove that the viruses kill the tissue. And then they get this material from the breakdown of the tissue and they say, see, the virus killed the tissue. 